The following program may contain explicit language. It's Tuesday, June 2nd, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There are two Americas. It may not be the two Americas you normally hear about. Over the last few days, there has been a daytime America and a night America. I'm speaking to you from daytime America. My neighbors and I interact over a fence at the stores. You can go for a run. You could take part in a peaceful protest. The peaceful protests are a hallmark of daytime America. Then nighttime comes. And in city after city, all hell breaks loose. Vandals, looters, purposeful miscreants with an agenda of disorder to provide cover for crimes or just as an end unto itself. That takes hold. Here now, in daytime America, where I speak to you from, you could read up on nighttime America. It's hard to process all the headlines. The truck driver in Minnesota, a Russian emigre who drove through a crowd of protesters, released without charge. A business owner in Louisville, gunned down by police. A 22-year-old black man shot to death by a bar owner during protests in Omaha. The bar owner will not be charged. Four St. Louis police officers shot. One Las Vegas police officer shot in the head, critically wounded. You won't believe some of the details of so many of these stories. That Omaha shooting, I would love to tell you, but I don't have time to do so. Normally, all of these stories would be community-defining events for weeks and weeks. And in many cases, they would be national flashpoints. We just sent two astronauts into space on a private rocket ship. That is absolutely irrelevant. It's not even a daytime America story. In nighttime America, we hunker down. We watch in horror as our cities continue to burn, as criminals continue to operate unimpeded, as order slips away, as a necessary message about police brutality goes unheard or is engulfed by fires allowed to burn because of police powerlessness. We don't have a president. We have an accelerant in the White House. We don't have many answers. We just have a wish this would all stop. We don't even have a baseline of normal to get back to, lest we forget the background condition is a pandemic, which already put us at each other's throats, but at least that was in terms of threats and posturing and feelings, not flames and thieving. You know, I was thinking about this. As a species, really as a people, an American people, it seems as if we'd conquered night. I mean, whenever you say, oh, look, I didn't even notice it got dark outside, that easily tossed off statement would be unthinkable for the vast majority of human experience. In fact, I want to amend the statement I just made. It seemed like we'd conquered night. It didn't seem like that at all. We don't even think about it. I mean, on Game of Thrones, they would say, the night is dark and full of terrors. But we gathered to watch that show at night, and it was only a form of entertainment. In fact, the specific genre of entertainment was fantasy. It was fantasy to fear the night. But if it seemed like we defeated night, now every night we worry brick by brick that night is defeating us. On the show today, in the spiel, oh, I just try to bring you the news, some news, what is actually happening around the nation. But first... My guest has written a book called Trumpocalypse. Well, you know, we do have Trump, and there is plenty that's apocalyptic going on. The question was, how will we survive the moment, and how will we also survive Trump's quote-unquote leadership within the moment? Now the question is more like, will we survive? David Frum was a stalwart conservative. Now he's a never-Trumper who writes for The Atlantic and is out with the book Trumpocalypse, 
restoring American democracy. And it all seems like it was a much harder task than even a week ago. David Frum is a former presidential advisor and speechwriter. He is an author. He writes for The Atlantic. His last big book, and he was on the show talking about it, was Trumpocracy, the Corruption of the American Republic. The verdict on that one was true. He's out with a new one called Trumpocalypse, which has, I think, a dual meaning, both the apocalypse visited by Trump and maybe visited upon him if certain things go well in the 2020 election. David, welcome back to The Gist. What a pleasure to be back here. So I want to start not exactly at the beginning of your premise, but just here. Every day on Twitter and often in long form in the Atlantic, you'll take on an aspect of uh, Trump's excess derangement, whatever you want to call it. And I always find great value in that. You often hear, don't fall into Trump's trap. You often hear, by even engaging, you're indulging in some sort of propagandistic design that he has. Well, I have to say, I enjoy specifically hearing from you, hearing from smart people tell me this. And yet at the same time, I think that's right. I think it is a diversionary tactic. So how do you navigate it? How should I, as a reader and imbiber of media, navigate that? The first thing that may be a a way to think about this is to understand Trump is not an evil genius. He doesn't have some master plan. One of my favorite quotations about him came from someone who worked with him who said, Trump's not playing three-dimensional chess. Most of the time, he's eating the pieces. So when you see him doing these things, he is not engaged in a conscious effort to distract you. In fact, he is himself distracted. So you're not at any risk of going down a rabbit hole and losing the plot. The next thing to keep in mind is the election will not be decided by people who listen to political podcasts. The election will be decided by people who are much more lightly attached to the political system. And they will decide the election based on issues of war and peace, based on issues of prosperity and depression, and of course now based on questions of public health and disease and insurance coverage. There's no danger that they're going to be distracted because they're not that connected. Right, right. They're not going to be distracted because they don't have that attraction to uh, news events in the first place. Don't worry that by talking about Trump's insane claim that Joe Scarborough committed a murder, that you are in some way sucking energy out of the political system that will be needed to win or lose elections. That's not how it works. And then you as a highly engaged person, and I say that just anyone who's listening to a podcast like this, to a political podcast, is, you know, the upper single digits of percentage of commitment to the political system. And good for you. I mean, we need more citizens like that. But if you are, you have the bandwidth to make sure that the government is put into better hands and also to deal with the individual outrages. Now, that doesn't mean you have to follow every argument on Twitter. One of my own personal rules for staying sane on Twitter is no arguments about arguments. Mm -hmm. So people often say to me, you said this today. What about this other thing that you might have but didn't say about this (laughs) other controversy you've never written about that happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago? What about that? You know, I'm just going to argue my argument. So not going down that kind of rabbit hole, but it is important to stand up for principles like the president of the United States should not abuse the president's immunity from libel and defamation to libel and defame. So I want to believe that your analysis is true. And I generally think it is, except for this one thing. If the election isn't going to be swayed at all by people who are distracted, then how do you explain that 
it does seem that a Trump uses distractionary tactics and on polling of voters the last time they were quite distracted by things like Hillary Clinton's email. There seems to be some precedent for some of the distraction working and maybe not even one piece of it, just Steve Bannon's premise of flood the zone with bullshit. And then eventually he gets, you know, his little petty corruption and reelection. Well, it's important. Trump is as much a victim of distraction as a practitioner. I have this joke, let me put it in not a way that sounds too bloodthirsty, but that if Trump had lapsed into a gentle state of unconsciousness with no pain to himself or sadness to anybody else at the beginning of his presidency, and then just floated in a kind of bathtub full of rose water and not said or done anything, he would have been above 50% in popularity through the first three years of his presidency. I mean, that to be as unpopular as he was, the only president in the history of polling never to surpass 50% in any reputable poll, to do that in the face of the best economy since the Clinton years, that took some doing. He should have just shut his mouth and not gone down all these rabbit holes. He didn't serve himself. It's true in 2016, Trump was able to turn what otherwise might have been an incumbency here into a non-incumbents here by ginning up a lot of accusations. But that trick doesn't work over and over again. And it worked in part because Hillary Clinton cooperated with it to some extent. Yeah. So this book, uh, given the the demands of publishing, there's a long lead time, but still in the preface, there's an acknowledgement. It's written in March. The pandemic was upon us. We didn't know what the contours would be, but you're talking about it. I would assume that you would say much of the election will be a referendum on his handling of the pandemic. Yes? I think indirectly, as we speak, it's true that a very large majority of white Americans do not know anyone who has been affected by the pandemic. So for a lot of voters, the pandemic is experienced through its effect on the economy, not directly through its effect on on health. Um, So I would say, unless this pandemic gets a lot worse, it's probably not exactly the disease that is going to be the voting issue. It's going to be the consequences of the disease, which have put so many millions of people out of work, nearly 40 million as we speak. Do you think that replaying tape, I mean, back in the days when we thought TV ads worked, and maybe to some extent they do, but replaying tape of him being dismissive and talking about how it will magically go away in April, is that a, an effective counterattack? Yes. No, that, that is, that, you're pounding home to people. Look, voters are actually, in the aggregate, very fair-minded. I mean, as individuals, we can believe all kinds of unfair and unjust things. But you, you get enough of us in a group. And we become quite fair-minded. We understand. And this is why most governors are popular. This is why most world leaders are popular in the face of real hardship. Because people understand that there's not a lot that the president of France could have done to prevent it, France from being touched. So they give leeway to something. You didn't do this. This is not your decision, not your mistake. How did you cope? And then People want, they want to believe well of their leaders. So even leaders who have demonstrably messed up, like Prime Minister Boris Johnson in Great Britain, um, got a, a bump because people wanted to believe in him. And of course he got sick. And so he, you know, people's human sympathy was engaged. So to drive home the point that everyone understands that the pandemic is not Donald Trump's fault. The neglect of it was his fault. It's worse here than it is elsewhere. It's worse than it had to be. That idea, and you can measure it in polls, people really are absorbing that idea. It's true. That's why they absorb it. Yeah. Although that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't always hold with every bit of truth. But so far in our conversation, you have said that the 
downward turn in the economy will affect the people more than actual deaths during the pandemic. I think that's true. And you also said if Donald Trump had been in a nice rose bath, uh, maybe getting you know a foot massage once a day and not tweeting, people would just look at the economy and give him credit. So that would perhaps lead a listener to say that if he just shut up about everything except for economic circumstances, he'd do well. But your book has an opposite premise. Your book says he's not going to do well. And it was written at a time when it looked like the economy was pretty good. Yeah. Well, first, you can't write around the fact of the president's deformed nature. So, I mean, when I when I imagined him in this sort of gentle, peaceful slumber, it was because so long as he's conscious, his psychic needs prevent him from doing these things. I mean, he's a malignant personality and he's an undisciplined personality. I think what we're going through right now is just so big that you can't talk your way out of it. But I believe that Donald Trump was in, in trouble beforehand, partly because I thought I believing that we were heading toward economic trouble because of the president's trade wars. And I wrote the book in a state of concern that the president was stumbling unintentionally toward a pretty big military confrontation with Iran, bigger than he intended, and that that could get out of control in 2020. If you'd asked me in September of 2019, when you say trump Oculus, what do you have in mind? I would say a trade war-induced recession and maybe a shooting war with Iran. Those are the things I worry about. I didn't, worry, I didn't see the pandemic coming, obviously. Right. But it was always that future events would redound to a set of circumstances that would be hard to ignore, and that would issue a referendum on Trump that was negative. But, you know, not only so far hasn't that happened, look at the reporting out of Iran. I mean, at least from a lot of what we've been reading lately, they seem to have had, I I don't want to, I don't, actually, I was going to say, I don't want to admit it. I don't really care. I don't have a dog in the fight, but I was pretty convinced that there was going to be some massive blowback toward the killing of the Quds Forest leaders. And now the reporting seems to be like, maybe Iran is happy or, um, hemmed in enough so that it knows that it can't really retaliate in a big way. Or one of a hundred other. I'm not going to pretend to be any kind of regional specialist there. And I don't have insight into the decision-making of authoritarian regimes. And of course, they have been hit very hard by this pandemic too. And that's had great impact on their state capacity. But it was never going to be true that Trump was going to be able to be the Machiavellian authoritarian that some people sometimes imagine him as. Because he's first and foremost psychologically needy. And in the second place, he's a crook and a crook in severe financial difficulty, always has been. And only third is he concerned with the gaining and using of power. And my concern in the two books, Trumpocracy and Trumpocalypse, which form a kind of cycle and events have changed. And so there's an arc and there's I changed my mind about some issues between the two books. Both they're focused on is we need a story that is bigger than Donald Trump personally, because I mean, he's such a obvious flim-flam man. He's such an absurd loudmouth. How could you be vulnerable to him? I mean, of all people, you know, this is not Huey Long. You know, this is not some spellbinding orator. This, this is not someone who, you know, whose life story, you know, Eva Perone, you know, I am you. Uh, I compare him at one point to Eva Perone. I quote a great observation about V.S. Naipaul, about Evita Perone, which is that she welcomed the hatred of her political opponents because she knew how to make the hatred a resource. Well, Donald Trump does use hatred as a resource, but he doesn't welcome it. If Harvard University gave him a degree, he would love it. Eva Perone would never make that mistake. Uh, you know, if he would love to be the UJA man of the year. Love it, right. love it, love it. There's, there's he no would, accolade. He would, 
I was going to say, even if he got a lesser award, he'd conflate it to UJA Man right. of the Year. Right. <laughs> right. So the question that Trumpocalypse focuses on again is why was American society so vulnerable to this person? And so vulnerable now because the United States got through the Great Depression without succumbing to demagogues. Joe McCarthy was crushed. George Wallace never went anywhere. And these were all in you know, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, uh, through the period of desegregation and racial strife. In many ways, the, the country was in much harsher condition or much more daunting circumstances than it was in 2016. So why vulnerable in 2016? And part of it was fluke, but part of it were changes in American society that I tried to describe in Trumpocracy and that I tried to fix in Trumpocalypse. Yeah. What I would also say is immigration was a tremendous trigger for these authoritarian movements in the United States and Great Britain, of course it was. And so one of the things I talk about Trumpocalypse is we're going to need to come up with immigration solutions if we're going to achieve political stability. So let me ask you about the information part of all this. How big a role, how pernicious a role did specifically Fox News Channel play? Fox News played an, an important role in radicalizing the Republican elite. But the people who produce Fox News also consume it, and they become victims of their own disinformation. But as important from a, the point of view of the health of the political system are the rise of Facebook and YouTube. You know, we talk about the media, especially people, those of us who are getting a little older. When we say the media, we mean the New York Times, we mean the CBS Evening News, we mean um, you know, the institutions you and I work for, which are institutions that understand their role as creating editorial content, uh, funding it through subscriptions and advertising, and that have some kind of internal stand, set of standards, as even Fox News does. They have some kind of standards. But the most important media companies in the country today are Facebook, YouTube, arguably Reddit, companies that don't think of themselves as media companies at all and, and don't accept the responsibilities that even the scummiest media company, even the Hearst newspapers accepted. What I would also say is we've had crazy paranoia in American society before. I mean, the Great Depression, you would think uh, you had Father Coughlin on the air and, and all kinds of demagogues. But we had other structures, some of them kind of ugly, but we had other structures that kept the political system more or less functioning. The people whose job it was to win elections, gain power, use power, had a kind of at one removed distance from the most paranoid elements in American life. And that stopped happening in the 2010s. And that's the theme of the, the two books, of why it stopped happening, which is a big subject in Trumpocalypse, and, and what you can do about it. We've had a political system that, that many people do not see as delivering for them, and not just in the material terms, but in the cultural terms. And they are then vulnerable to these other kinds of, of messages. We are not going to uninvent the internet, and Facebook is here to stay, and anybody's ability to mobilize unhappiness with Facebook is going to be less than Facebook's ability to buy politicians. So they can be shamed a little bit. But what we need to do, and this is what I try to write about, is to build a country where you have more people who are immune to these kinds of paranoid messages and where the people who are not immune can do less damage. I quote in, the, in Trumpocalypse the speech Sarah Palin gave at the Republican Convention in 2008. A great speech written by Matt Scully, one of the great speech writers. And she quoted um, an essay from the 1940s about her own background, and she said, we breed good people in our small towns. And of course we do. God bless them. One of the things I, I propose in the book is, is like a kind of cultural revolution of sort of civic pride and sort of blue centers of saying, you know what, it's 
it's pretty great here, and we do do good things for people. And you know, the, these films we produce, you know, they they are massive revenue earners for the United States, and this is how the bills get paid. <laughs> so, the Republican Party, wither the Republican Party, and I have a lot of thoughts on this. And the fact that so many predictions about the future of this party or that party are always wrong. What is the usefulness? What is the usefulness of even engaging in what might happen with this party that Trump belongs to and has warped to his image? Well, I, I remain a registered Republican. I look forward to living long enough to be able to cast Republican ballots again. The Democratic Party of California is an example of the harm that is done when you have a one-party system. Um, California is a one-party system, not like Alabama because of gerrymandering. That when you look at the share of the seats in the two houses of the legislature that Democrats win, it tracks almost exactly to their share of the vote. They just are getting over 60% of the vote. What that means is that politics in California becomes factional rather than partisan. And what that means is that the typical voter has no idea what is going on. A typical voter who does not want to listen to political podcasts and obsessed about politics gets what the difference between Republicans and Democrats is. They do not get what the difference between a Bill de Blasio Democrat and an Andrew Cuomo Democrat is. And they certainly don't get it when it comes time to, you know, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez versus Joe Crowley. I mean, that's just, you get, it becomes personality driven. It suppresses turnout. Um, you, you deny people information that voters need. So party competition is healthy, factional competition is exclusionary, and that's what one party states get. Look, one, one of the things that is wrong with the Congress today is there is only competition, there is never bargaining. And Congress isn't meant to work that way. But then you go to the California state legislature or the New York legislature, and there's only bargaining, never competition. The Republican party, as you say, it's not going anywhere. Just as the Democrats got over being on the wrong side of the Civil War and the Republicans got over being on the wrong side of the Great Depression, Republicans will get over being on the wrong side of Donald Trump. History is made by people who did the right thing when it seemed the foolish thing and then wait long enough and the foolish thing can often look like the wise thing. None of us have the gift of prophecy to see what will be the right side of a question to be on five, 10 years later. It's easier to do the right thing and in a funny way safer because you don't have to guess as much. David Frum is the author of Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. Quite a project. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. Delighted to be here. And now the spiel. Like, you have been trying to get my head around what is happening in America. Like you, I do it by reading, by monitoring media, social media, Twitter, by calling up people who might be smart and sensible to be on my podcast. Okay, with you, that's probably takes the form of listening to smart people on podcasts. So I think that I have an obligation to just tell you how this might seem to people who are outside your circle or your social set or your bubble or your newsfeed. It's one of the reasons I like podcasts, but so many podcasts I listen to are with inside that circle or that bubble. So normally how I get news from everywhere is that I rely on well-financed network news teams and national newspapers. Today, my newspaper was not delivered. Official reason? Dear subscriber, your delivery may be delayed today for the following reason, general delay. Yes, that's because the actual reason is curfew, looting, breakdown of social order. You know, 
I feel like there are several different news feeds that are occurring simultaneously. And unlike most of the early mid 21st century media experience, it is not true that there is one true feed and one false feed or the factual and scientific feed versus the mythical and benighted feed. Yes, yes, I know there's a whole discourse about red pilling or some great awakening, but let's be blunt. QAnon, plandemics, they're all farcical bullshit. And fearing the caravan or the cure can't be worse than the disease, all that rhetoric, maybe it has a tiny basis in some truth, but those ideas are weaponized and exaggerated for political gain. It was never really the case that the different feeds all had legitimacy to them. But what we're seeing now is legitimate phenomena worthy of worry, and no one is weaving them together. Search for yourself. You will come across these different feeds. There is the looting feed. There is the peaceful protest feed. There is the protest sadly turning ugly feed. There is the abusive cop feed. There is the where are the cops feed. There are the cops have an impossible job feed. There is the Trump is an outrage feed. There is, oh, it's all a purposeful tactic to distract us feed, but distract us from what? Oh, police brutality, or maybe general fascism, or possibly the works of Antifa, or maybe even the incompetence of state and local officials. Look, I want to make this clear. Usually there is legitimate news and much less legitimate news, and there's some amount of choice or judgment that goes into what makes the legitimate news, but it's usually not the case that there is so much news and so much of it is being uncovered in the name of a definition of legitimacy. Right now, I think that it is 100% legitimate to be outraged by the death of George Floyd and others who died at the hands of police, and also to be entirely dedicated to addressing those concerns. But it's also 100% legitimate and worth a lot of coverage to look at the rampant crime and fires and looting that are besetting our cities. And it's also proper to focus on the outrageous acts of our president, who beats a path through legitimate protesters to awkwardly fondle a Bible. But it is also legitimate to say, Ignore that entirely and focus on the chaos that is the immediate threat. I watched two hours of CNN last night. Chris Cuomo did two or three cutaways to reporters in the street, matters of policing and order, but he was mostly intent on analysis of Trump's march to St. John's Church. He needed to put that in the proper context. I'm sold. Cuomo wasn't wrong, but it's not what I needed from the news. Next came Don Lemon, who did pretty much the same, with a focus slightly skewed away from Trump and more onto how police were mistreating citizens. Worthy, but not the whole story. On MSNBC broadcast from Rockefeller Center, which was being looted during the broadcast, the thrust of coverage was, how do we make these protests mean something? But that meant that the dire pressing matter of rampant crime was treated more or less like a distraction, or not even a distraction. Perhaps, as per this Chris Hayes question, a clarifying signal. You know, I remember someone uh, talking to a, a young man in Baltimore uh, in, in, in the edges of the protest over Freddie Gray, who said that, look, if things weren't burning, you wouldn't be here right now. No one would care. And I wonder what you say to people who say, look, yeah, there's, there's destruction, there's broken windows, and there's things being lit on fire, but no one seems to care. Otherwise, if you thousands of people walk peacefully and it gets covered maybe for a day, this is the only thing that wakes people up. I think mass chaos scans as chaotic and distracting rather than having the effect of concentrating the mind. That's me. I wonder how regular Americans might be taking in the torrent of information. Unfortunately, because our electoral system is perverse, not every regular American counts. 
So I sought out how protests and conflagrations attached to protesters were being covered in big cities, in states that might change their mind on Trump, and that might matter. I was also paying attention to what blame was being put on police in mishandling protests and the distinction being made between protester and criminal. So let's start with Phoenix. The local ABC affiliate gave viewers a sense of police overreach. ABC 15 discovered of the 114 people arrested Saturday night, Phoenix police copy and pasted the probable cause statement in a huge batch of arrests. By copy and paste, they used the same generic statement without specifics or suspects' names to detain and book dozens, maybe more than 100 people. Almost all of them. Uh, every single one that I saw yesterday was a copy of it. Armando Nava, defense attorney with Arizona Attorneys for Criminal Justice, represented more than a dozen of the arrested. Myself, there were 14 that I personally handled that it was the same copy and paste statement. Was that 14 out of 14 for you, or did you have some others yes. that it was? It was 14 yes. out of 14. Yes. ABC 15 investigator Melissa Blasius asking Phoenix Police Chief Jerry Williams for an explanation. Any concern about that? So there, there's always concern when there are not charges, but at the end of the day, I do know that my op officers were operating and functioning under justice, under trying to protect the community because public safety, our number one priority is safety. So you're talking about pulling people out of cars. Those cars were used to help fortify and give gun, not guns, knives, I'm gonna uh, rocks. I'm going to because we don't have any evidence right, that we're getting guns. Right. So go. Rocks and bottles, um, water, food to those individuals who were absolutely there to commit crimes. The chief of police, who you heard quoted there in Phoenix, Jerry Williams, is African-American, as is the chief of police in Cincinnati, Elliot Isaac. This curfew didn't happen just because everything was going great. We had to do this because of the amount of damage. We've had over 100 businesses that have been damaged, looted, uh, shots fired into them. We're out here. We've had officers shot. We've had officers injured, assaulted. I mean, there's been a number of things. That from a report titled, Cincinnati Police Denounce Agitators with Guns Crack Down on Curfew Violators. In this report on WCPO, State Senator Cecil Thomas, also African-American, was quoted. The thing I didn't want to see is a huge crowd downtown. Uh, they had to rally on the square. A lot of the people who have goodwill, they leave, they left, they went home. This group we're seeing here now are determined to... Uh, start some anarchy. So I'm worried about the businesses. As these individuals leave, there will be windows broken out. There's no doubt about it. The question though is, is can we get enough police presence? So there we have media quoting two high-profile African-American officials making the case that the chaos is real and the danger is present and it is a priority for concern. Hamilton County, where Cincinnati is located, went for Hillary Clinton over Trump, 52 to 43 percent. That happens to be the precise inverse of how the state of Ohio as a whole voted. My point is, no matter how buffoonish or dangerous Trump's words and photo ops were, I think the people of, say, Cincinnati and surrounding areas are incredibly concerned, not about that, but about the pressing threat right now. In Charlotte, North Carolina, the protest turned ugly as per the framing of WSOC. And that peace and calm continued through that prayer rally and throughout a number of other protests throughout yesterday afternoon. But then as night fell, 
some other protesters broke that peace and seemed to take out their anger on uptown businesses, throwing scooters through windows, smashing the front of a 7-Eleven, and damaging a number of restaurants. Over in another potential swing state, Pennsylvania, the news from Scranton was calm. I chose Scranton because it's in Lackawanna County, which actually went for Clinton over Trump by a small percent. There was voting in Pennsylvania today, which dominated news coverage, and COVID stories were also prominent. On the website of the Scranton Times Tribune, before you got to any story about protests or unrest, you encountered these headlines. Police seek man engaging in lewd behavior in Dixon City parking lot. Font police warn of bear sighting. Dunmore crews respond to report of woman dog falling into creek. But then the story, Philadelphia police call local officers for backup. Philadelphia Police Department asked area departments for backup as violent, destructive riots continued into a second day Sunday. So let's go to Philadelphia. Of course, the biggest city in the biggest swing state. There they were reporting on a local business owner who shot a looter to death. Of note, the business was a gun store. Here is Fox News 29 with that report. This place had tried uh, to have a break-in earlier this week during all the looting, and so uh, the longtime owner who trains people like Philadelphia police officers how to shoot uh, with deadly aim uh, happened to be armed and inside waiting for the next somebody to try and loot his business. And sure enough, at 4 o'clock, he sees them breaking in on the surveillance. Now notice that gate. Uh, the padlock on there has been snapped by bolt cutters that police later found inside. And then the front door kicked in, uh, not done as police would say professionally, but done very crudely, kicked in, the glass shattered. And you can see the sign here uh, next to the garage, uh, firing light entered through parking lot on Front Street. So it was telling you how everybody comes and goes out of here. And so they figured they were going to come and go with a bunch of guns during all this looting going on. I am slightly conversant in Philadelphian, so I will translate from Fox News 29 Steve Keeley's native Patois. When he said this place had tried to have a break in, he meant the store had experienced an attempted break-in when he says, happened to be armed, waiting for the next somebody to loot. He's, of course, saying that the proprietor of the store was lying in wait. And when the reporter says they figured they were going to come and go with a bunch of guns, he was speaking of the prospective robbers. And you know what? Maybe they should have expected the owner of Firing Line Gun Range and Gun Store to be armed. But Philadelphians know how to interpret such sentiments. Their mayor, Jim Kenney, did so as well. He said he was, quote, deeply troubled at the ease with which another life has been taken amidst this chaos, but also said, quote, looting has consequences. On several dozen news sites that I surveyed, President Trump was not top of mind. The protesters' earnest hopes for reform was covered, but not with banner headlines. Looting, crime, chaos, riots were frequently mentioned. And that's what these news consumers in these places would see. It was instructive, more so than an ongoing soliloquy about presidential blundering. I have no predictions about the electoral consequences of this coverage, or really even this week. In fact, I think things will certainly change within a day or two. I do know that Americans want their communities to be safe. I have no idea if they'll credit or blame Trump for that safety, or whether or not this fear subsumes or maybe elevates the call for police reform. I do know that America is more on the edge than I literally have ever seen in my lifetime. And one reasonable request 
is that everybody should be able to see it through less of a filter. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the GIST associate producer. She dwells in a crepuscular America. Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, also crepuscular, but constantly at Margaret's throat because she's matutinal, and he, of course, is vespertine. Two flavors of crepuscularity. The GIST. I got to get back before curfew or else Bill de Blasio will never let me take the T-Bird up to the gorge with Eddie Lumpy and all the fellas. Oomperu depperu duperu. And thanks for listening.